0: Seat. Let's, Let's pray. I pray that that is true of us, Father, that these aren't just words that we sing, that your praise will ever be on our lips. Of course, the only way that happens is if our heart is full of you. Not full of me, not full of us, but full of you. Because we know that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so we come to you this morning, we need our eyes opened. We need the eyes of our hearts enlightened by the power of the Holy Spirit to grant us understanding of your words. Prepare hearts, Holy Spirit, I invite you to come and to move, to bring To convict us regarding sin, righteousness, and judgment. To build up your church. To set people free. Because when we know the truth, the truth sets us free. I pray that we would fall deeper in love with the Son of God. As a result of this message that is preached. It may be, again, Father, not as if it is me speaking, but rather you speaking through me. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're going to continue our series for the next three weeks, entitled Different, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and I want to begin with a story I think I've shared with you before. If, not, if I have, be patient. If, if some of you that may be new here, uh, this will be new to you, but it fits so well. It's a story I heard, oh my goodness gracious, 27 years ago uh, in 1993. It was from the Pastor Tony Evans, who I referenced in the Kingdom Voting Series. Uh, At the biannual, that's every two years, right? Biannual, I got that right. Uh, Campus Safe for Christ staff conference. Every two years, the the Campus Safe for Christ staff would descend upon Moby Jim at Colorado State University in Fort Collins, Colorado, and there would be like three to five thousand staff members there. And we'd have the top of the line speakers, I mean, you you name it, they were there. And this is what he spoke on, he said this, one day I noticed a crack on the wall in my house. I called a painter, and he came over and said he could fix it. So he put on plaster, he sanded, he painted, and the wall looked like new. He was happy, I was happy, I paid him, and he went home. About two weeks later, the cracks reappeared. I called the same painter, and he came over and he said he could fix it. He put on plaster, he sanded, he painted, and the wall looked like new. He was happy, I was happy, I paid him, and he went home. About a month later, the cracks reappeared. This time, there were even more cracks. If the cracks on my wall were a family, then they had a party, and they invited their aunts and uncles and nephews and cousins to their house. I mean, there were cracks everywhere. And I'm pulling out my hair at this time, trying to think, what in the world is going on? This time I call a different painter. He comes to my house, looks at my wall, and says, Mr. Evans, I can't fix your wall. I say, why not? You're a painter. This is what you do. He says, the problem isn't your wall. The problem is your foundation. You have a shifting foundation. And until the foundation is fixed, you will always have cracks in your wall. Obviously, that illustration rang true with me because I remembered it. 27 years later. But the cracks that appear in your life, that appear in our lives, that appear in the lives of Christians today, the consistent failure to maybe overcome that nagging sin or the high-profile pastor that has an affair with a church member, the wife who can't seem to stop criticizing her husband, the husband whose love for his wife has grown cold, or the child who rebels against the parent's authority, in many ways, all these can be attributed to a faulty foundation. There has to be a firm foundation based upon truth before there can be right behavior. Now, Jesus understands this. And this is why he lays down the proper foundation in his very first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Everyone turn to Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12. Matthew 5, verses 3 through 12. While you're going there, I'm going to begin reading. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted And utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And blessed are those who actually got their Bibles and didn't just look at me. I.e., this little guy right here. I give him a hard time. He's got coffee in his hand, so. But as you may recall... In the Beatitudes, Jesus lays out, that's what we just read, by the way, they're called the Beatitudes, in case you forgot. He really is laying out the qualities that make the citizens of his kingdom distinct from the rest of the world. Just a little brief review. But we're to be different. These qualities make us distinct from the rest of the world. So the citizens of his kingdom are the ones who are bakers due to their spiritual bankruptcy. The ones who mourn over their sin, they regularly confess their sin to God. The ones who are meek before a holy God. The ones who hunger and thirst for righteousness that is not of their own. And consequently, they are the ones who are merciful, having received God's mercy. This, of course, leads to the ones who are pure in heart. They will one thing. And this holiness brings conflict because this world is not a holy world, thus they need to become peacemakers. They're the ones who are peacemakers. You cannot separate peace and holiness. And the ones who are persecuted, the world hates Jesus and it will hate his followers. This is the distinctive lifestyle of a citizen of God's kingdom. If you wanna know if you're in his kingdom, There's your measuring stick. It is this lifestyle that you live. It is completely counterculture. It is the opposite of the way of the world. It is different. Are you with me so far? Can I get a hallelujah from the congregation? All right, you're awake because it's so dark outside. But just upon a quick glance at the Beatitudes, even the untrained eye can see that Jesus is really defining the character of a believer. And that leads to a very important point. It's the point of this whole sermon. And we can't miss this point in our Lord's teaching style that is found not only here but throughout the Bible. Now while it is not explicitly stated, In the scriptures, we may recognize it with such phrases as this, and I came up with these to give you the idea. It's character before commission. You have a commission thing to do. What comes before that? Character. It's an attribute before action. A doctrine before duty. Preparation before practice. Traits before tasks. A makeup, it's who you are before mission, what you do. And I like to think of it this way. I mean, this is really kind of the title of the sermon. Are you ready? Before you do, you must be. You got that? Before you do, you must be. Being who you are is to come before doing. And I'm going to assume that this silence means that you're getting this, correct? It's so important that I put this quote up here for you from Dallas Willard. And I want everyone to read this. The most important thing in your life is not what you do. It is who you become. That's what you will take into eternity. The main thing God gets out of your life is not the achievements you accomplish, it's the person you become. The building that I spent five, six years, 2009, five years, 2009 to 2014, the building that in Grable, Indiana, an impressive building, all of that, it was all about getting The people of the promised land in that building. It doesn't go with me when I go to heaven. In fact, what will happen to that building? It'll be gone. Now, it looks good in the resume, right? It's impressive when it was first built. I was the guy when that was built because they got to the promised land. I was the guy when we were there baptizing people in the pond that was on the property because that's what the vision was. I was the guy. A few years later, they didn't want anything to do with me. Who you become is what matters. Now, Jesus said it this way. I put this verse up there so you can follow along. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. You see... The being must come before the what? The doing. You got that? You must be before you do. In fact, the title of the sermon is being before doing. And again, he said it this way in this verse. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits, The being, say it again, the doing comes from their being, okay? I want to reword this verse in this way. You cannot hide who you are. You cannot hide who you are. It will eventually come out. I was told this years ago that the issues that a person has in their life will eventually play out in their ministry, Let me put you this way: The issues you have in your life will eventually play out in your marriage. And Carol certainly knows about Don's issues, because <laughs> they are a plethora of issues. You're awake, you're laughing, that's good. My wife is embarrassed, that's even better. OK. But I've seen this advice prove true many times. Let me share you how this spiritual maxim, which is what it's called Being before doing is illustrated throughout the Old and New Testaments, okay? Just sit back and listen. God had a plan to bless the world through the offspring of Abraham. His plan required his people to be sustained during a severe famine by moving them safely to Egypt. Well, how would he do this? Well, through Joseph, the great-grandson of Abraham. But before Joseph was ready to be used in such an important task, God needed to build some character in him. And here's what God did. At the age of 17, the scriptures tell us, Joseph is betrayed by his brothers and sold as a slave to Potiphar. After rising to the top position in Potiphar's house, Joseph is falsely accused of rape by Potiphar's wife and wrongly imprisoned. While in prison, Joseph is put in charge of all the prisoners due to the favor of God. And God also gives Joseph the ability to interpret dreams. He correctly interprets two dreams of the servants of Pharaoh, which lead to one of them being released. And for his services, he asks only one thing. Please remember me. He is forgotten and remains in prison for two more years. At the age of 30, after 13 years of trials, Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams and becomes second in command in Egypt. And God uses Joseph to bring his people to Egypt. So, this boastful boy who foolishly revealed his dreams to his family that his father and his siblings would bow in submission before him, something unheard of. By the way, his brothers were already jealous of him at that time. This boastful boy is now a man humbled by his circumstances, and is wise in his ways. Now, this is the type of person that God can use to influence the world. And that's the key phrase, influence the world. To these people out of slavery in Egypt, to the promised land, God raises up the man Moses as their leader. He was their deliverer, but before Moses was ready To be used in such an important task, God needed to build some character in him. Here's what God did. By a sovereign hand, God puts a Hebrew baby named Moses in the house of Pharaoh. As a young man, through his own energy and own smarts, he tries to be the deliverer of the Hebrew people, only to fail and be exiled into the desert. Jewish tradition tells us that Moses was roughly 40 years old at the time. For the next 40 years, Moses wanders the desert as a shepherd, living a solitary life with his family, and most of his time is spent with sheep. Around the age of 80, God calls Moses to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. So, the headstrong man, who tried to do the work of God in his own strength, and on his time frame, is now a different man, humbled by his circumstances and surrendered to God. This is a type of person that God can use to what? Influence the world. Say it. Influence. That's the key word. To become the next king of Israel, God raises up David. But before David was ready to be used for such an important task, what did God need to do? Build character into him. Here's what God did. As a youth, roughly 15 years of age, David is anointed to become the next king of Israel. There's only one problem. The current king is still alive. And for the next 15 years, God prepares David to become king through the furnace of affliction. He removes David's crutches. Now, you know what crutches are. If you ever had a bad ankle or a broken leg, you have or knee problems, you have walk with crutches. It's things that we depend upon for support. But what does God remove from David? Well, he removes his friends, remember Jonathan, the son of the king, that friendship's gone. His family, David, was too toxic, too dangerous to be around. They could not be around him. His mentor, Samuel, died. His wife, the daughter of Saul, could not be with him. His shelter, where he was living, was taken away. His country literally was taken away from him. He had to flee to the land of the Philistines. His pride was taken away when he realized going to the Philistines was a mistake. He had to feign insanity to be set free. 14 times Saul attempts to murder David. Did you know that? 15 years David is 15 years old for 15 years by the age of 30 He's living in the wilderness in caves or on foreign soil on the run constantly. The scriptures say he'd be on one side of a mountain, Saul being the other side, pursuing him. The innocent shepherd boy, who was described as a man after God's own heart, was toughened up as he learned the value of patience, endurance, and forgiveness, all the while still maintaining a soft heart before God. This is the type of person God can use to do what? Influence the world. To become the forerunner announcing the coming Messiah, God raises up John the Baptist. But before John was ready for such an important task, God needed to do what? Build some character into him. You're getting the repetition, the point here, right? What did God do? Well, John was most likely a Nazarite. Nazarites were those who were consecrated to serve God and were generally separated themselves from other people. They didn't drink wine or strong drink. They didn't eat grapes or anything that had grapes in it. He had to refrain from cutting his hair. He could not come near or touch a dead body. So John spent almost all, think about this, all of his 30 years living in the wilderness. Until God called him to begin his ministry as the forerunner, to prepare the way for the coming king. And how long did this ministry last? About two and a half years, we think, it was John's ministry. 30 years of preparation. For how long? Two and a half years. And what was his diet, by the way? You remember this? Locusts and honey. Yeah, go ahead and, it's not longer keto, right, or South Beach diet. It's a John the Baptist diet. Some locusts and honey, that's your diet, okay? Now, in Paul's writings, I want to draw your attention to just one of his letters. So I could do it to pretty much every one of his letters, by the way, in the New Testament. But I want you to watch or to notice how he outlines his letters. Let's look. You don't have to go there, you can just... I put the verse up there for you, Romans 12.1. Very familiar verse. This is what we find. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, Paul says that be, before we offer our spiritual worship, what, what would we call offering our spiritual worship? Doing. Okay? You got that? Before we offer spiritual worship, we must know the mercies of God. So knowing the mercies of God is what? Being. The mercies of God are the motivation for this spiritual worship. So what are the mercies of God? Now, you remember the Bible study Sunday school, right? Whenever you see the word therefore, what's the question you ask? What is it therefore? So it's putting you back to what was previously written. So what are the mercies of God? Well simply put, they're everything that God has done for the believer, listed in chapters one through 11. And here is a sample, and I'm gonna put them up here for you so you can see, of just some of the things that God has done. This is pretty incredible. And it would make sense then, by the way, because this is in the sermon, a little extra note here, when you understand this, it is not, therefore, unreasonable for God to ask you to offer all of yourself to him, your spirit, your body, your mind, and your will. It is only reasonable because of all that God has done. Because for him to give and you don't give anything back, that's not a relationship, is it? How many of you would be in a relationship with somebody that you gave and you didn't get anything in return? That's not how relationships work. So this is what God has done. These are some of the mercies of God, okay? Love, God's love is shed abroad in your hearts and nothing can separate us from the love of God. Grace, Romans chapters one, three, five, and six, all the way through, grace, grace, grace. You're not under law, but under what? Grace, the Holy Spirit, Romans 5 tells us that the Holy Spirit has shed abroad in our hearts. Chapters 8, verses 2, 4, 9, 11, 14, 16, 26 tell us that we have received the Holy Spirit to dwell with us. Do you think he wants you to get that point, by the way? Okay. Peace, chapter 1, verse 7, chapter 2, verse 10, chapter 5, verse 1, chapter 8, verse 6, and elsewhere it says we've received peace. Faith is mentioned over 20 times. We have faith comfort chapter 1 verse 12 power chapter 1 verse 16 hope chapter 5 verse 2 chapter 8 verse 20 and 24 it goes on patience you've begun. in patience chapters 9 and 11 kindness chapter 2 verse 4 security chapter 5 verse 10 eternal life in chapter 5 verse 21 freedom in chapter 6 and chapter 7 resurrection chapter 8 sonship in chapter 8 intercession in chapter 8 I have not even mentioned, by the way, that we've also received glory and honor and righteousness and forgiveness and reconciliation and justification. These are all the mercies of God. So here is Paul's pattern in his writing. Before you ask anybody, to perform a certain duty, you deal with truth. You deal with the individual. Because duty is always based on, or should be based on for the Christian, doctrine. There has to be a foundation of truth before there can be any call to a certain kind of behavior. It's the being before the doing. And by the way, this is the same pattern in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Chapters one through three lay out who you are. Remember that? Who are you? Well, I've been blessed with what? Every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. In love, God what? Predestined adoption as a son, right? He chose you before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. The son earned your salvation, earned your inheritance. The spirit guarantees inheritance. He lives within you. That deposit guaranteeing everything. That's just chapter one. He never asks you to do anything until what chapter? Do you remember this? Chapters four through six is all about doing. Walk, therefore then, walk in humility. Walk in love. Live out that calling. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. So let's bring this full circle and go back to Matthew 5. In verses 3 through 12, which we just looked at, he's teaching on the Beatitudes. This is who you are. Blessed are. Blessed are. Blessed are. That is the being. You got that? You with me so far? That's who you are. It's different. Now, it makes sense. What would logically follow then? What you do. And this is what you do, right here. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the lie of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Again, who you are is evidenced by what you do. If you were to summarize Matthew 5, 13 to 16 in one word, the word I would choose is influence you see that? How are you to influence the world? How are we to influence the world? By being what? Salt and light. light. You got that? So Jesus is saying, in other words, verses 3 through 12, describe the kind of character that you now must use to influence the world as taught in verses 13 to 16. In order for us to influence the world, to be salt and light, it presupposes the kind of character defined in the first section of the Sermon on the Mount, verses 3 through 12. And this is the point. As we become kingdom people, we will have a profound impact upon the world. That is God's plan. But until you become kingdom people, the being, you have little effect upon the world. I, your doing. So let's look at a classic example of too much doing and not enough being. You might remember this. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. What was wrong with Martha? I mean, she was doing a good thing, right? Serving, using her gift of hospitality. But there's nothing wrong with Martha, but there's something in Martha that was wrong. In her heart, and it's the heart, the doing or the being? The being. In her heart, the being, she was deficient. Now listen to me, therefore her doing was greater than her what? Being, and the results were disastrous for Martha. Do you follow me with that? Do you see how her doing was greater, her activity was greater than her being? Her being couldn't sustain all of her doing. In fact, she was corrected by Jesus. Martha should have fixed the being. She should have been sitting at Jesus' feet before she engaged in any doing, using her gift of hospitality. By the way, Mark 3, 13 to 15, in the call of the disciples, what did Jesus call them to do first of all? He chose them, 12 of them, to what? Be with him. Then he gave them the authority and the message to go and do. First you be, then you do. I mean, I keep repeating this because you need to get this. Because the only reason I can understand as to why the church is where it is today is that we have very little influence on the world. So why do we have very little influence on the world? The being. We gotta work on the being. Who we are. And you want to know if you really get who you are. You meet a stranger and they ask, well, what do you do? And what, how, how do you answer that question? Your job, right? Is that really, though, who you are? Who are you? If I ask the question, who are you to a stranger, they're going to probably give me, tell me what they do, right? I'm a. Who are you? Well, I am a engineer, I am an electrician, or I'm a pastor, or I'm a teacher. You know, I work at Costco. Isn't that how we answer those questions? Is that define who you are? But it reveals what you think who you are. So, if you ever find me, I might do this just to test you. Who are you? What answer do you think I want you to say? Child of God. Chosen me for eternity past to be holy and blameless. I mean, you can name it all. This is who you are. Therefore, that should reflect in what you do. You got that? And that's before I do a sermon, it's who I am. I don't do this because I enjoy, I do enjoy teaching and so on, but I do it because I'm called, because I love God, because that's who I am. I'm a child of God and I'm in a relationship with Him. You don't go to work because that's who you are, right? In fact, you should be at work doing it, but in, in, in the hidden recesses of your heart, you're in fellowship with the Father, with the Son, with the Spirit. Because that's really what you want, because that's who you are, that you're created to be. This is just something He give you to do to provide for your family, to make more children. To make more little disciples, and they can make more disciples, and multiplication, and so on and so forth. That doesn't define who you are. So if you find yourself thinking that way, you've missed the point. Who you are always reflects in what you do. Make sure that your doing isn't greater than your being. So before you engage in anything, before you use your gifts, focus on the being, who you are. Now Martha isn't the first to make this mistake and she certainly won't be the last. I'm gonna close with this story uh, discovered this week, it's by Pastor John Mark Comer, I don't know if you've heard of him or not, I hadn't, but. It's a story very familiar. I'm very familiar with. He de- details his story of too much doing and not enough being in his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, How to Stay Emotionally Healthy and Spiritually Alive in the Chaos of the Modern World. And here's just a portion of his story from the forward of this book. <laughs> it's a Sunday night, 10 p.m., Head up against the glass of an Uber. Too tired to even sit up straight. I taught six times today. Yes, six. The church I pastored just added another gathering. That's what you do, right? Make room for people. I made it until you talk, till about talk number four. I don't remember anything after that. I am well beyond tired, emotionally, mentally, even spiritually. When we first went to six services, I called up this mega church pastor in California who'd been doing six for a while. How do you do it, I asked. Easy, he said. It's just like running a marathon once a week. Okay, thanks. Click, I hung up the phone. Wait, isn't a marathon really hard? I take up long distance running. He has an affair and drops out of church. That doesn't bode well for my future. I arrive home and have a late dinner, can't sleep, that dead, tired, but wired feeling. I crack open a beer on the couch watching an obscure kung fu movie nobody's ever heard of. I'm ending most nights this way on the couch long after the family has gone to bed. Never been remotely into kung fu before. It makes me nervous. But the thing is, I feel like a ghost. Half alive, half dead. More numb than anything else. Flat, one-dimensional. Emotionally, I live with an undercurrent of a nonstop anxiety that rarely goes away. And a tinge of sadness. But mostly, I just feel blah. Spiritually empty. It's like my soul is hollow. My life is so fast And I like fast, I'm type A driven, I work six days a week, early early to late, and it's still not enough time to get it all done. Worse, I feel hurried, like I'm tearing through each day, so busy with life that I'm missing out on the moment. And what is life but a series of moments. Monday morning, up early, in a hurry to get to the office, always in a hurry. Another day of meetings, I freaking hate meetings. But our church grew really fast, and that's part of the trouble. I hesitate to say this because, trust me, if anything, it's embarrassing. We grew over 1,000 people a year for seven straight years. I thought this was what I wanted. I mean, a fast-growing church is every pastor's dream, but some lessons are best learned the hard way. I got into this thing, meaning ministry, to teach the way of Jesus. Is this the way of Jesus? Speaking of Jesus, I have this terrifying thought lurking at the back of my mind, this nagging question of conscience that won't go away. Who am I becoming? I see a man who is successful but by all the wrong metrics, church size, book sales, speaking invites, social stats, etc and the new American dream, your own Wikipedia page. In spite of all my talk about Jesus, I see a man who is emotionally unhealthy and spiritually shallow. I'm still in my marriage, but it's duty, not delight, My kids want nothing to do with the church. She was the mistress of choice for dad. I'm basically who I am today, but older and worse. Stressed out, on edge, quick to snap at the people I love most. Unhappy, preaching a way of life that sounds better than it actually is. Oh, and always in a hurry. Why am I in such a rush to become somebody I don't even like? It hits me like a freight train. In America, you can be a success as a pastor and a failure as an apprentice of Jesus. You can gain a church and lose your soul. I don't want this to be my life. Fast forward three months, flying home from London, spent the week learning from my charismatic Anglican friends about life in the spirit. It's like a whole other dimension to reality that I've been missing out on. But with each mile east, I'm flying back to the life I dread. Catching up on email, plans are good for that. I'm behind as usual. Bad news again a number of staff are upset with me. I'm starting to question the whole megachurch thing. Not so much the size of a church, but the way of doing church. Is this really it? A bunch of people coming to listen to, to a talk, then going back to their overbusy lives. Does that sound familiar? Someone else wearing purple up front here, have I ever mentioned it to you before? Along with everyone else in this row that's wearing purple. I know I get that in there some way. What's that leadership axiom? As go the leaders, so goes the church. Dang, I'm sure hope our church doesn't end up like me. Sitting in aisle seat 21C, musing over how to answer another tense email, a virgin thought comes to the surface of my mind. What if I change my life? Another three months and a thousand hard conversations later, dragging every pastor and mentor and friend and family member into the vortex of the most important decision I've ever made, I'm sitting in an elder meeting. I say, I say it, I resign. Well, not resign per se, I'm not quitting, we a multi-site church. More like demote myself. I want to lead one church at a time. Novel concept, right? My dream is to slow down, simplify my life around abiding. I want to reset the metrics for success. I want to focus more on who I am becoming in apprenticeship to Jesus. They say yes. I end my 10-year run to church My family and I take a sabbatical. It's a sheer act of grace. I spend the first half comatose, but slowly I wake back up to my soul. I come back to a much smaller church. We move into the city, I walk to work, I start therapy, work fewer hours, date my wife, play Star Wars Legos with my kids, practice Sabbath, detox from Netflix, start reading fiction for the first time since high school, walk the dog before bed, you know, I live. A life of speed isn't always, isn't easy to walk away from, but in time I detox. I feel my soul open up. There are no fireworks in the sky. Change is slow, gradual and intermittent. Three steps forward, a step or two back. Some days I nail it, others I slip back into hurry. But for the first time in years, I'm moving toward maturity. One inch at a time. Becoming more like Jesus. I'm moving toward maturity. And more like my best self. Even better, I feel God again. I feel my own soul. I honestly value who I'm becoming over where I end up. And for the first time in years, I'm smiling at the horizon. Do I have to ask the question, what's the point of this sermon? Being before doing. And so I wanna ask you this question, leave you for this. How is your being? Because the world, and I, di- I can't just say this. I mean, I can say it, but I say it, and you, I have a visual day-to-day proof of it. This world desperately needs people of being i.e. people who are salt and light. And you will never be salt and light until you what? You put into your life the character that was written for you in the Beatitudes. Because from this point on, in his Sermon on the Mount in chapter five and six and seven, it's all doing. But where did it begin? Blessed are, blessed are. Blessed are, it's the being, it's who you are. So, you focus on the being. For some of you, there's too much doing, your being can't sustain it, and you know it, and you see it, and you have an ineffective life. Your witness is ineffective. For others, the being is there, but you simply aren't doing. Therefore, some deficiency in your being, because the being should represent the doing. How is your being? Because next week we'll talk about being salt. The week after that, being light. For your sake. Who you become, that's what you take with you to God, and that's what God gets. You're that trophy that He's able to display for all of eternity because of what you allowed Him to do and, and who you became. That's what matters. Then you do. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time. And I kind of always pray that this time in the sermons I'm closing. The being isn't always the easy part. Having character built within us, Lord, I know that it is, it's through that character that, and we are to use that character. You use that character within us to influence the world is what I'm trying to say. We need the power of the Holy Spirit and we need to be surrendered to you. And Lord, may you use us to be salt and light to influence a lost and dying world, a world that is absolutely right now, right before our eyes daily, makes absolutely no sense. Our leaders are absolutely lost. And quite frankly, Lord, to be honest with you and everybody here, for their sake, these godless leaders and some of the decisions they're making, they're not even reasonable. There is too much fear in the world. And that's not the life that you have for your children. We can stand up and be salt in life, be who we are, be different, and you will draw people to us and we can share the hope that we have, the reason why we're different. And so Lord, show us what parts of our being, whether the cracks in, any found, in our foundation that we need to focus on, so that you can be glorified through us in what we do. Because what we do can bring glory to you. as they see our good works, the doing. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's close with a song, please. Stand up.